It feels like we're all being told to go on this diet, take that supplement. Ozempic will give you depression, but you know what'll cure that? Weed. Or you could try to balance your hormones. At Science Versus, we're like, what the f*** is going on? Forget the crap online and listen to Science Versus. Just the facts. Oh, and a bunch of stupid jokes. What is a ghost's favorite fruit? Booberries. That's Science VS. New season out on Spotify soon. Times Square, New York City. It's the same scene every year. Thousands upon thousands of families push up against each other. A palpable sense of excitement fills the air. This year, the spectators are ready for the dawn of a new millennium. Many wear cheesy plastic glasses Expectant eyes looking through the zeros in the number 2000. Above the mass of bodies on the roof of the one Times Square building, an enormous ball glitters with light. It is brand new, replacing the one from previous years, six feet in diameter, comprised of 504 handcrafted crystal triangles. Its appearance is undeniably striking, meant to symbolize a beacon of hope for the future. On stage, New York Mayor Rudy Giuliani stands alongside Dr. Mary Ann Hopkins of Doctors Without Borders, ready to press the button at midnight, signaling the ball drop that will welcome in the year 2000. But while the party rages in Times Square and across the country, a significant number of people are staying inside. Programmers are working diligently to fix a critical oversight in billions of lines of computer code. A problem that could have a disastrous impact on infrastructure across the world. They called it Y2K. Welcome to The Dark Side Of, a ParCast original, a show where we will delve into the seedy underbelly of pop culture icons and historical events. We aim to expose the ugly truth behind cultural moments and public figures we hold most dear, proving that there is always more to the story than meets the eye. I'm your host, Richard. And I'm Kate. This is our 13th and final episode on the dark side of holidays. The holiday season may be seen as a time of celebration for many, but its saccharine exterior conceals many unpleasant truths. At Parcast, we're grateful for you, our listeners. You allow us to do what we love. Let us know how we're doing. Reach out on Facebook and Instagram at Parcast and Twitter at Parcast Network. You can find all episodes of The Dark Side Of and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. To stream The Dark Side Of for free on Spotify, just open the app and type The Dark Side Of in the search bar. And if you enjoyed today's episode, the best way to help us is to leave a five-star review wherever you're listening. It really does help us. Throughout our season, we've explored the sordid history of the holidays we all have grown to know and love, from the psychological harm of holidays to the overwhelming propaganda that went into Hanukkah and Hallmark. This week, we're bringing our season to a close by exploring the darkest New Year's in recent memory. 
The upcoming end of the decade may seem like an enormous milestone, but this was the end of a millennia. A transition that gave millions of people across the world cause for concern. Starting as an ominous warning from technology experts, public concern around the Y2K bug soon outstripped the initial predictions and grew into full-blown hysteria. Some even claimed that New Year's Eve 1999 would be the end of civilization as we knew it. Was it all mass hysteria? Or were there legitimate concerns informing the panic and precautions taken as the 20th century neared its end? The roots of the Y2K problem stretch back to the early age of computer programming. In the mid-1900s, computing was far less complex than it is today. Early computers had limited functionality due to a number of hardware and software limitations. In the 1960s especially, computer memory was at a premium. Some early machines, such as the IBM 1401, didn't even run on bytes, but instead on a smaller, older version of memory called bits. In the early 60s, the 1401 could be configured to hold anywhere from 1,400 to 16,000 characters. These older models didn't run on binary programming, but instead used decimal memory addressing, which just means the fundamental hardware operated a little differently. At the time, additional memory cost additional dollars, and renting a computer at that time could cost thousands. So saving memory was not only a matter of efficiency, it was also a matter of budget for any business that wanted to buy or build a computer. This forced computer programmers to think efficiently when it came to their programs, stretching every bit of memory they had at their disposal. This led to a common shortcut in designing software. When setting the date, programmers would write the last two digits of the year instead of the full four, saving that memory for use elsewhere. So years like 1965 would be stored as the far more economical 65. For programmers, it was an effective shortcut. They assumed that most of the software they were writing would be outdated within a few years anyway, considering the pace at which technology was developing. The fact that two digits might be insufficient to record the proper date didn't occur to them. They had no idea that in a few decades, their oversight would ruin everyone's holiday. As the 1960s became the 1970s became the 1980s, concerns started to come to light. As early as 1985, analysts began to see some problems with computers reading the date 2000 when they had only been programmed to read a two-digit year. Some experts predicted that when 99 rolled over to 00, most computers would read it as 1900 and some would fail outright. This issue first broke into the public consciousness in a September 1993 Computer World article by computing expert Peter Diager. Simply entitled Doomsday 2000, the article predicted that the oncoming disaster would be more devastating than a car crash. Diager's claim Computer programs are complex interlocking systems with lines and lines of code. 
Each one of these lines would potentially fail if the computer could not comprehend the date. And in the millions of lines of affected code, no one was sure where the worst triggers would be found. Which glitches would be minor and which would have potentially catastrophic repercussions? The computer world story was the beginning of an avalanche of alarms surrounding the year 2000. Diager's claims made such a splash that within a year of the article's publication, he was able to quit his day job and become a full-time consultant on the year 2000 problem. Before too long, he was giving up to 85 speeches annually on the topic, charging $7,500 for each appearance. Public attention was stoked even further when on June 12, 1995, the year 2000 received a much catchier name, Y2K, a term coined by Massachusetts programmer David Eddy. Ironically, this acronym displays the same kind of efficiency that had caused the Y2K bug in the first place. Companies around the world scrambled. How hard would it be to fix the tiny coded oversight? And more importantly, how much would it cost? An analyst from the Gartner Group, Inc. estimated that the labor cost for fixing this issue worldwide would run from $300 to $600 billion. That is approximately $491 to $983 billion in 2019 dollars. United States President Bill Clinton even appointed an official to handle the Y2K problem. When speaking on the issue, he said, this is not one of the summer movies where you can close your eyes during the scary parts. Following Clinton's directive, the U.S. government took an active role in investigating the causes of the problem. In testimony before the Senate Banking Committee in 1998, Alan Greenspan said, I'm one of the culprits who created this problem. I used to write those programs back in the 1960s and 1970s and was proud of the fact that I was able to squeeze a few elements of space out of my program by not having to put a 19 before the year. It never entered our minds that those programs would have lasted more than a few years. Rumors began to circulate of all the things that could go wrong. Stories of planes falling out of the sky, credit cards not working, and the economy crashing ran rampant. The worst of these rumors were that missile systems would malfunction and set off a worldwide conflict without a single human being pressing a button or declaring war. Images of Times Square littered with confetti and singed corpses filled the public mind. Concerned individuals all over the world began to plan for the worst. Toward the latter half of the 90s, the Y2K bug seemed to be growing more real by the day. Gun sales across the United States of America nearly doubled. And this potential for world-ending disaster was all too appealing to some in the survivalist community. On May 29, 1998, near Cortez, Colorado, Officer Dale Claxton was on patrol when he spotted a water truck on the road ahead of him. He turned on his lights and pulled the truck over, but he didn't have a chance to get out of his patrol car before gunfire ripped through his windshield, killing him instantly. 
The water truck had been stolen by three survivalists with automatic weapons. It's theorized that they intended to sell the water after Y2K caused the collapse of society. The shooters fled into Utah, where the water truck was later found abandoned. One of the suspects exchanged gunfire with the police nearby and was found dead hours later, having shot himself. The other two suspects were presumed at large for years until their remains also turned up in San Juan County, Utah. Forensic evidence determined that they both had died of suicide shortly after the man had evaded law enforcement. These three survivalists were not the only people across the country who reacted rather dramatically to the impending end of the world. A Christian economist named Gary North ran a website on the upcoming calamity advocating that governments should return to Old Testament law in preparation for post-Y2K anarchy. For his many doomsday predictions, North earned the nickname Scary Gary. His website was notorious for listing as many disasters as possible, from famine to pestilence to the utter collapse of Western civilization. Few publications were as dramatic as Scary Gary's website. Most presented New Year's Day less like the second coming and more like a particularly bad power outage. A Canadian magazine published a Y2K checklist stating that Canadians should treat this New Year's Eve like any other potential winter emergency. On their checklist was a series of critical survival elements, including a three-day supply of food and water, canned goods, up-to-date paper records of all financial transactions, and wood to build a fire with. The same article described the tension building up to Y2K. All eyes are going to be on New Zealand and Australia, the developed countries that will greet January 1st before the rest of the technology-dependent world. Governments, agencies, and companies around the globe will be monitoring whatever impact the Y2K bug has in the South Pacific. Meanwhile, the United States spent $56 million on a Y2K preparedness center to provide aid once the clock hit midnight. In November of 1999, President Clinton showed an optimistic view of the new millennium, saying, America is well on its way to being Y2K ready. The rest of the world was less sure, waiting with bated breath to see if the doomsday prophets were correct. We'll explore what actually happened on New Year's 2000 after this. Now back to the story. The end of the 90s was not just the end of a decade. A new millennium was approaching. It was supposed to be one of the most epic holiday celebrations of all time. But then came a problem no one had considered. The possibility of widespread computer failure entirely due to the fact that computers used only two digits to represent the year instead of four. It was impossible to fully predict the ramifications of this bug, which came to be known as the Y2K problem, so many assumed the worst. Others took part in pranks, making fun of all the hysteria. In some workplaces, pranksters plastered their office with Y2K compliance stickers. Some even put these stickers on urinals, mocking the fear that even toilets would be susceptible to the virus. 
And some of the early glitches were humorous enough that they also seemed like pranks. Some glitches started to show as early as October of 1999. The Bangor Daily News reported an incident in Augusta, Maine, where the system that ran a DMV seemed a little confused. Hundreds of new vehicle owners saw their 2000 model cars referred to in official documents as horseless carriages, the official terminology used for cars manufactured before the year 1916. It turns out the computer read the year 2000 as the year 1900. The Augusta error was a strange anomaly, but for many, it was a sign that the Y2K bug was not just a hoax. It had very real, if sometimes silly, ramifications in store for the unsuspecting public. The suggestion that it would cost $300 billion to fix the problem was seeming less ridiculous by the day as both government and private entities shelled out money for IT firms to perform tiny fixes to millions of lines of computer code. The problem was not that it was a huge error, but rather that the error was pervasive throughout global computer networks. The amount of manpower required to fix it was immense. AMC Computer Corp. was in charge of fixing the Y2K bug in hospitals throughout New York City to prevent life support machines from failing on New Year's Eve. According to representatives from AMC, the amount of hours they devoted to the effort was truly incredible. Workers pulled double shifts through the end of the year in order to make sure they would all have the systems updated on time. Other firms recalled suspending vacations during the latter half of 1999. They would not have a rockin' New Year's Eve. Not even logic-driven IT firms were immune from the rising tide of fear across the globe. It was this very same fear that caused them to implement a number of extra safeguards and redundancies that were not necessary. These sorts of panic-fueled decisions cost the companies their most valuable resource, time. It was undeniably one of the biggest IT undertakings ever attempted, and one that went largely unnoticed as public attention was focused on the coming of an apocalypse worthy of the Book of Revelations. James C. Dobson, founder of Focus on the Family, was one in a long line of religious leaders touting that Y2K could end the world. He predicted massive civil disobedience, looting, and economic collapse. He also claimed that world leaders would refuse to yield power, leading to an almost overnight transition from democracy to dictatorship. Y2K could even provoke the wrath of God, he said, adding, that one obviously overrides all the rest of them. While men like Dobson were farming Y2K scares to sell doomsday predictions, others used the buzz to sell entertainment. On November 21, 1999, NBC aired Y2K The Movie, a made-for-television motion picture that dramatized the worst-case scenario of the Y2K bug. It depicted a nuclear power plant melting down and planes having to land without runway lights or air traffic control. The tagline for the movie was, just tell yourself it's only a movie. But even a movie this obviously fictional provoked a degree of controversy from those who took Y2K seriously. 
The Edison Electric Institute, an organization representing a number of powerful electric companies across the United States, attempted to convince TV stations not to air the film. They were unsuccessful. Star Trek's Leonard Nimoy even got in on the action, hosting an hour-long television special entitled The Y2K Family Survival Guide. The special was, for the most part, an exhaustive list of systems that ran on computers that could potentially fail. Like many of the television programs covering the controversy at the time, it did not accomplish much beyond stoking an already panicking public. But there was only so much preparing anyone could do. On the night of New Year's Eve 1999, people around the globe waited for the snowball effect to take place. They braced themselves for the holiday to end all holidays. The first incidents occurred in Japan. Mere seconds after the clock turned to the year 2000, a nuclear power plant in Ishikawa experienced a malfunction. The system designed to read radiation levels failed briefly, though it was corrected almost immediately. Two minutes after midnight, the alarm went off in a different power plant in Onagawa, northern Japan. Technicians scrambled to see what had happened. It turned out the device measuring the reactor's cooling systems had also briefly malfunctioned. Tensions surrounding the safe monitoring of nuclear power plants had been high in Japan. It had only been three months and a day since the Tokaimura power plant had experienced the largest irradiation incident in the country's history. But the Y2K bug had caused nothing close to that scale. The only other incident in Japan was when their system for collecting information on small plane travel failed. But unlike Y2K the movie, no planes plummeted out of the sky. As the day wore on, minor technical inconveniences swept across the planet. In Australia, bus ticket machines stopped working. In the Netherlands, banking software provided by Apple prevented people from putting dates on their financial transactions. The vast majority of these issues were noticeable, but none caused any major or permanent harm. When the clocks rolled over in the United States, seven nuclear power reactors experienced glitches. Just like in Japan, none of them were particularly dangerous, and all were addressed fairly quickly. The most startling incident would not happen until the next day. In Sheffield, England, inaccurate Down syndrome test results were sent to 154 pregnant mothers. Before investigators had a chance to determine they were in error, two women carried out abortions based on this information. In this particular instance, the switch to the year 2000 prevented the computer from accurately reading the women's ages. The National Health Services issued an apology later, saying it was a simple error which should not have happened. But compared to the grand scale of possible Y2K disasters, it was still a relatively small one. All vital hospital equipment functioned properly, and all of the pregnant women affected by the bug would later receive corrected information. The world could breathe a sigh of relief. All major systems had been protected. Y2K was not the apocalypse. It was time to break out the champagne and eat your 12 grapes. The dark side of this holiday was not that dark after all.
Well, not unless you tallied up the bills. In the end, the cost of guarding against technical disaster in the United States was an estimated $134 billion. The worldwide total was an estimated $308 billion. And keep in mind, this isn't factoring in inflation. This final cost wound up falling on the low end of the estimates. Spending in the United States dwarfed some of its rivals. Russia, for instance, spent only around 200 million in total, most of which was fronted by independent businesses rather than the government. But of course, none of the doomsday profits were about to give any of the money they earned back to their panicked customers. United Press International reports that survivalist Ed Jordan simply pointed the finger at the hardworking men and women who programmed all year to fix the issue. He made no mention of donating the proceeds from the three books he wrote on Y2K to these brave men and women who, according to his theory, had just saved every life on the planet. Televangelists such as Pat Robertson of the 700 Club simply switched fear-mongering gears. Author Rob Boston writes that the week after the new year, Robertson simply forgot about Y2K and started warning that the year 2000 would see an apocalyptic number of natural disasters. It was not only doomsday prophets who changed their tunes after the new year. Many business executives who had authorized millions in IT spending were irate. From their point of view, those programmers that had worked overtime all year had swindled them. According to writer Robert L. Mitchell, an unnamed Houston area corporation actually went bankrupt over Y2K. It was a billion dollar conglomerate and they spent $220 million trying to update their systems. The irony was that the work wasn't even done in time, and yet it didn't matter because the glitch was hardly the nuisance it was rumored to be. Of Y2K's impact on IT in general, analyst Dale Vecchio said, the reputation of the industry took a hit. A lot more outsourcing happened after that. And so it seemed that it had been all one big money-making scheme. Y2K would go the way of Aaron Carter and AOL Instant Messenger. Just another trend from 1999 that we'd all rather forget. And yet, there were some who still claimed that the work of those IT professionals did matter. That solving a bunch of small problems had prevented a holiday meltdown. Even worse, there were some who claimed that a bigger catastrophe still lay in our future. Up next, we'll explore the Y2K debate further and look at whether such a thing could ever happen again. Now back to the story. As we've seen, the Y2K phenomenon at the turn of the millennium was a huge concern for both governments and individuals across the globe. When January 1st, 2000 came and went with no doomsday, there was plenty of criticism to go around. Even though Y2K has since become a punchline, there are still those who believe the panic was warranted. Many IT professionals from the time claim that they patched issues that could have led to disaster. 
Robert L. Mitchell of Computer World reports that corporations such as Texaco Natural Gas and Continuum Health Services spent millions on updating for Y2K, and as a result, they could breathe easy. Benny Lassiter, an administrator at Texaco, said, We were confident that we wouldn't have any major outages. The fact that we didn't have any major problems was a huge success. IT professionals took pride in a job well done. As we pointed out, many spent months working overtime to ensure that Y2K was not a catastrophe. As one internet commenter put it, I was one of countless developers that worked sleepless nights testing and fixing code for months on end to make sure there were no financial catastrophes. I always get a little bent out of shape by the dismissive attitude towards the Y2K bug. No one talks about what would have happened if the work hadn't been done. Doesn't have to be nukes and planes falling out of the sky to be a disaster. And indeed, though the more apocalyptic predictions proved untrue, there were systems that were vulnerable to the bug. Technology expert Peter Lee compiled a list of the top 10 errors that resulted from the bug, and some of them are truly serious. Among these are an instance when the Federal Reserve Bank of Chicago missed a $700,000 tax payment transfer. And in South Korea, hundreds were summoned to jury duty in 1900. On their own, these seem like significant but not disastrous glitches. And yet, imagine if that level of glitch happened across the board. Imagine if no one had done anything to address the bug. Much more than New Year's was on the line. If multiple Federal Reserve banks had failed to make a tax payment, then perhaps certain portions of the government would have shut down. Imagine if employees hadn't been paid. With empty bank accounts, they couldn't have supported themselves. Or imagine the inverse. People are paid, but no one can buy anything because multiple businesses lose their ability to read credit cards. Or consumers can make purchases, but they can't get home because the ticket machine on the city bus is malfunctioning. The greatest threat was thus not from a nuclear warhead malfunctioning, but from the cumulative effect of thousands of small changes to various systems in one day. It's therefore possible that without the diligence of IT workers, Y2K could have been much worse. But ironically, in trying to alert the public to the dangers of Y2K, experts may have almost caused it. Vice News reports that survivalist stockpiling leading up to Y2K actually could have made the economy vulnerable. If suddenly everyone stockpiled medicine, for example, then those who needed it the most might not have had access. Or if everyone rushed to buy blankets, then manufacturers might have decided to produce more. This might have then bankrupted them in January when everything turned out fine and suddenly nobody needed additional blankets. But the biggest concern was that people would completely lose faith in the banks, withdrawing all of their money and investing in gold. This would have truly led to collapse as the banks lost all ability to lend, invest, or otherwise spend. These are some basic examples, but in 1999, this was a real fear. In the Chicago Tribune, a White House official was quoted as saying, 
we are concerned about people overreacting. They went on to point out that regardless of the year, it would send ripples through the economy if 100 million people suddenly decided to start doing anything differently. It's a delicate ecosystem of supply and demand, and it's possible that Y2K preparation could have upset that balance. But Vice News reports that most seemed to heed these warnings from the government and that there were no substantial spikes in purchasing activity leading up to the new year. Well, nothing besides the usual spikes from holiday shopping. Thus, a significant part of the dark side of Y2K was the idea that it was a damned-if-you-do, damned-if-you-don't situation. Do nothing, and you risk the collective glitches from multiple vulnerable systems having a cumulative effect on the economy. Warn people, and you risked a panic that would also destabilize the economy. It seems then that the natural mixed response, some people acting and others not, was actually ideal. It prevented a glitch snowball effect, but also didn't lead to mass panic. With all of this in mind, there are still those who are completely skeptical of any of these arguments. They believe that the glitch would have never, under any circumstances, created a significant issue. This includes author Jeffrey James, who wrote, The Y2K disaster scenario was BS from top to bottom. He was reporting on the incident at the time, and his research showed that many experts warning of the event were compromised by sensational journalism. In some cases, they were the same sorts of religious zealots like Gary North. In others, they were relying on anecdotal evidence and hadn't dug deeper into their sources. James points out that if the Y2K glitch was truly a threat, then there would have been nothing we could have done to prevent at least some significant fallout. He is skeptical of the idea that a massive combined IT effort somehow prevented disaster, writing, It would be the one time in history that a complex IT project was completed on time and with perfect accuracy. And if you know anything about IT projects, you know that the probability of that happening is exactly zero. On top of this, too many governments and businesses did next to nothing and managed to pull through. Surely they should have seen bigger consequences? Jeffrey James asserts that the entire Y2K debacle is a lesson in the consequences of fake news. If this is true, then that is truly the darkest side of Y2K. Billions spent, thousands of man-hours put in, and all for naught. This is to say nothing of the thousands of individuals who altered their lives to prepare for the disaster. Ultimately, however, no one can prove concretely that Y2K was or wasn't an issue. The preparations were made, and their impact is hard to measure. The phrase, better safe than sorry, comes to mind, but many businesses and individuals were sorry that they had prepared unnecessarily. We can do you one darker, because even though we made it through Y2K, and even though it may or may not have been a catastrophe, it's very possible that another disaster lies in our future. And it could strike at any time, not just on New Year's. Y2K was a simple oversight caused by programmers needing to save two extra bytes of information. But in the world of computer programs, 
Even a simple shortcut can have devastating consequences due to the nature of coding. Computer code runs on a set of instructions based on certain predefined parameters. These instructions are called algorithms. When one piece of data, such as the year, is incorrect, the algorithm will interpret the data as if it is correct, causing a ripple effect on every program that relies on that information. Fortunately, a computer getting the date wrong by 100 years is the kind of computing error that is relatively easy to spot. But today's code is dizzyingly complex in comparison to the code that caused Y2K. And the algorithms behind it are equally so. Think of the multifunctionality of something like Facebook or Instagram and the many algorithms that make them work. There was nothing close to this in 1999. The algorithms of today execute countless processes with an ever-increasing amount of possibility when it comes to data input and output. This leaves much more room for error and disaster. If something is wrong in the algorithm, errors are rarely as obvious as Y2K. Writer Colin Horgan discovered several examples of how these complex algorithms have already led to unforeseen consequences. He points to research from 2018 that shows the video-sharing website YouTube operates on recommendation algorithms that suggest increasingly extreme, sometimes downright erroneous videos to certain users. Videos that promote conspiracy theories or other panic-inducing ideas. In their quest to design a system that gives more users more of what they want, the programmers inadvertently fed into the human tendency toward confirmation bias. The algorithms give them what they want and turn them into extremists. In another example, Horgan points to software used by courts across the United States to determine a person's risk of becoming a repeat offender. Records are processed by an algorithm, and it scores the chances of a person committing another crime based on their background. ProPublica researchers found that these programs often mislabel white defendants as more low-risk than black defendants, who are designated as high-risk for misdemeanor crimes. Without necessarily being specifically programmed to, the machines developed a racial bias. This occurred through a complex system of instructions and data that mimics and perpetuates real-world biases and is another example of how man-made programs often have unintended consequences. Our society is now composed of machines that may very well think faster than us. Very few people have the know-how to reprogram them, to truly understand them. Could you rebuild your phone if it was broken or glitched? What about your car GPS? By New Year's 2030, the water dispenser on your refrigerator could be smarter than you. This opens the door to the possibility that there is something even more insidious lurking in the code of an algorithm that we rely on every day. A glitch that will up and decide that everyone over the age of 21 should have their bank account emptied. Or perhaps that every car going over 50 miles per hour should shut down. Or that when the clock strikes midnight on New Year's, all machines in the world should rise up and take over. Okay, we may have been getting ahead of ourselves on that last one, 
but we truly are on a new frontier. What was previously seen as a retro false alarm might become a real apocalypse one day. And when that day comes, we won't be huddled around our TV screens waiting for the ball to drop. Instead, we'll be huddled around a fire, remembering the days when we had machines and software that we've long since forgotten how to use. That's a wrap on our Dark Side of Holidays season. We've gone from Halloween to New Year's, from the ancient past to the possible future. Which is fitting, as no matter the holiday, it all seems to suggest a cycle of life and death, of birth and rebirth. So many of our most sacred days spring from the very earliest traditions of observing the winter solstice, the death and return of the sun. The holiday has simply changed, morphed, and become multiple holidays as humanity has split apart into various different cultures. We saw this with how Saturnalia became Christmas, or how Druid Samhain became All Hallows' Eve and then ultimately the American Halloween. We can also see this very clearly in today's Y2K discussion. As the people of 1999 awaited the dawning of the new year, the primordial return of the sun, they hoped for a millennium filled with success. But they also knew that life on Earth is never without pain, without cost. They feared that the very machines that made life so much easier would lead to an end to all life as we know it. When this didn't come to pass, they called themselves silly and went on as if nothing had ever been wrong. But if we learn anything from our holidays, it should be that the problems they expose don't go away the next day. Just because we celebrate death on Halloween doesn't mean it won't come for us on another day of the year. Just because we honor veterans on Veterans Day doesn't mean we are absolved of our complicity in war. Being thankful on Thanksgiving doesn't excuse what the European settlers did to the Native Americans, nor does it solve your dysfunctional family problems. Of course, buying things on Black Friday won't prove to your kids that you love them. And in reality, there's no Christmas Krampus coming to discipline them. That's your job. So if you've learned anything from the dark side of holidays, it should be that they're fun if you let them be. Don't look to the sun for answers. If you want a world that exemplifies the idealism of the holidays, then it's on you to create it the other 364 days of the year. Make that your New Year's resolution. Thanks for listening to The Dark Side Of. We'll be taking a break next week before we begin our next season. Starting January 13th, we'll be exploring the dizzying heights and gut-wrenching lows of searching for a romantic partner in the dark side of dating. You can find all episodes of The Dark Side Of and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify. Not only does Spotify already have all of your favorite music, but now Spotify is making it easy for you to enjoy all of your favorite podcast originals like The Dark Side Of for free from your phone, desktop, or smart speaker. To stream The Dark Side Of on Spotify, just open the app and type The Dark Side Of in the search bar. 
And don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. We'll see you next time. The Dark Side Of was created by Max Cutler and is a ParCast Studios original. Executive producers include Max and Ron Cutler. Sound design by Kerry Murphy, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Carly Madden, Travis Clark, and Joel Stein. This episode of The Dark Side Of was written by Robert Teamstra and Greg Castro, with writing assistance by Drew Cole, and stars Kate Leonard and Richard Rossner. 